0: Good morning and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. We have a big show planned for you this morning. New York City Mayor Bloomberg is here to talk about his plan to use some of his fortune to not only close the MTA's budget gap, but to lower subway and bus fares by 15%. April Fool's. (laughs) Okay, so we still have a few days until April 1st, but today we're testing your gullibility. Our guest is Andy Christie. He's the founder of The Liar Show, a comic storytelling event that uses the audience as a polygraph test. So get out your BS
1: detectors. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. Tell us about The Liar Show. It's uh, been around for about two and a half years. We started in August of 2006 first show we did was at a little black box theater called The Pit, the People's Improv Theater on West 29th Street. And it actually came about because I had done a couple of one man shows, and they asked me back to do another one, um, which I didn't have. And I thought, how can I fill that time <laughs> and put together this show? I'm part of the big storytelling community in, in New York, um, whose kind of epicenter is The Moth. I don't know if you've heard of The Moth, um, it's a national storytelling organization. So I sort of grabbed a bunch of friends and people from that group and asked them if they would do this The the Liar Show. What's the premise behind The Liar Show? The premise is that four people um, tell personal short little mini-memoirs, you know, embarrassing moments, um, you know, adventures, love stories. Uh, Three people are telling the truth, and one person is making the entire thing up. How did you come up with the idea? Well, I always assumed that most of the stories that I heard – in life and in the other storytelling shows were about 70% baloney anyway. You know, a lot of embellishment. They call it embellishment. That's kind of the euphemism for making stuff up. Um, so I thought for this show we would just just put it right out front.
0: I attended a show last week at Comics in Manhattan mm-hmm. down on 14th
1: Street. Yep. Now, there was a lot of audience participation in this show as well. Yes, yes. The, the interrogation, which for me is my favorite part. Uh, the first show we did did not have an interrogation. We just had the stories... And then have the audience guess, and, and it felt like something was missing. So the very next show, we edit the interrogation, and it, and it's that's where it's you know total audience participation and gets pretty lively. All the storytellers get back up on stage, and the audience kind of pelts them with with questions to try and get to the bottom of it. So that's where there's lots of sort of improvising, and, and that's what the, you can kind of see the audience shift from person to person as they think. You know, someone blanches at a question. They okay, there's the liar, but then with the very next question, they switch. You know, to someone else. So it's fun watching them kind of this human wave go back and forth in the audience. So we go through the interrogation and then we take a little bit of a break um, during which people in the audience kind of discuss amongst themselves and debate. And it's fun watching that. The, the people, some people take just copious notes when they get their ballots and they're filled with little kind of you know, crazy little writing and jottings. We can back up and, um, and we play a video to reveal who the liar was, anyone in the audience who, who got it right. Um, wins a t shirt. So, we're going to play this game today. We Great. actually recorded some of the
0: stories from the show that I attended last Wednesday night, and we're going to hear some of those stories. And at the end of the show, our listeners have to guess who is the liar. Great. So, first out
1: of the gate is Mark Katz. Tell us about Mark Katz. Mark Katz is a very funny guy. He is um, oh, one thing I like about this show is that, that they're not uh, all the stories are not by performers necessarily. They have all sorts of different backgrounds. Mark Katz is a a political speechwriter. He actually was Bill Clinton and Al Gore's joke writer. He likes to say he's the guy who made Al Gore so funny. (laughs) He has a book out called Clinton and Me. So he has such a very interesting kind of exotic background that a lot of us have you know, no idea what what goes on in that world. That's where he comes from. He's a political speechwriter.
0: All right. Well, let's hear Mark's story and see if you think he's telling the truth.
2: It's a drizzly Saturday morning in 1994. My telephone rings. It's Mitch, uh, one of my best friends since junior high school and now an assistant Manhattan district attorney. Hey, Catsy, a bunch of my friends from my office are going to be playing touch football out in Central Park today if you want to come join us. Mitch knows that football is Catsy's least favorite playground sport, Uh, so he throws in this additional detail. My buddy John's supposed to show. He knows that I know who he meant. John Kennedy, Jr. uh, loomed large in my life from my earliest days. I was born in December of 63, just a few weeks after that terrible day in Dallas. And my mother's response to that situation was to become obsessed with all things Kennedy and Camelot. So when I was born, uh, she looked down to see a little Jewish John John of her own. And when it came time for my first haircut, she went to the utility drawer to find a pair of scissors to administer me a very popular haircut at the time called the John John. Now, this perfectly cute story about a mom-administered haircut only turns tragic over time, as my mother continues to cut my hair until I go off to college. (laughs) I'm not kidding, he said at the Liar Show. Having your mother cut your hair is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a very uncommon practice this far from Appalachia. <laughs> and we, it was a norm for us, but somehow we knew it was, it, was a, it was a secret source of shame. And I knew not to mention this to anyone else. In fact, the worst part of these haircuts was not the haircut itself, although I can promise you, and I have lots of photographic evidence to prove, that these were substandard haircuts. The worst part was the Monday after the haircut, and I'd go to school, and it set off all the taunts that you'd expect. Cats got a haircut. Cats got a haircut. And I was always petrified that the conversation would turn to where cats got a haircut and who cut cats' hair. These were just some of the psychic scars I took with me into adulthood and brought with me to Central Park that day to play football. And as I'm approaching the great lawn, I see a bunch of guys out there tossing the football around. And I see, as I get closer, the guy with the backwards jet hat is John Kennedy Jr. I'm about to play touch football with John John, and I can smell the chowder. (laughs) We make quick introductions, choose up sides. I am on the John team, my friend Mitch is on the other not John team. (laughs) John's our quarterback. And I'm assigned to be on the offensive line, which means it's your job to um, protect the quarterback. Now, not only am am I short, I am also slow. (laughs) So the person who was lined up against me went right past me and sacked our quarterback once, twice, three times. He couldn't get off a pass. So I am now reassigned out of necessity to be one of the two or three eligible receivers on our team. John's already visibly annoyed with me and he has no interest in throwing the ball to me Um, until one time I'm on the line of scrimmage and the guy defending me slips on the wet grass and I break free and I'm headed towards the end zone and John sees me headed towards the end zone and he's hanging back in the pocket and then he pumps once and then he pumps twice and then he lets go a perfect spiral coming right at me. I'm into the end zone and it hits me it's, I can see it coming right at me. It comes. You're supposed to hit your receiver right in the square in the chest, which is where it, his pass was too square in the chest because it hits me like a precordial thump. Goes up in the air, spinning end over end, giving me an opportunity to drop the same ball twice, <laughs> which I do. There is no way I'm going to be invited to hyannisport now. The game is over. We are drubbed, uh, and we all head back towards the west side. And there are a bunch of guys hanging around John, and he, I could tell he was nervous me, but I needed, for some reason, needed to get in close to him to tell him something that I had never told anyone else outside my nuclear family. I get into, get close to him, and apropos of nothing, launch into this story about how my mother used to cut my hair to look like his and that's what led me to a childhood of home haircuts this startled him and he said um, does, does your mom still cut your hair and I, and I said no, he said good for you <laughs> he, seemed, he seemed genuinely relieved to hear my answer and come to think of it so was I thank you very much now, is Mark telling the
0: truth? You be the judge, right? That's how it works. That's how it works. It's simple. Our next yeah. storyteller
1: is a guy by the name of Peter Lubell. Peter Lubell, um is a, a regular, sort of a core member of The Liar Show. He's done a, a bunch of them. He is a uh, TV and video editor, producer. He's worked for Independent Film Channel. He's worked for uh, BBC America. He came to Edinburgh with us. He went to the Edinburgh um, F- Fringe Festival in 2008, and uh, he spent a month there. With us, a very funny New Yorker, one of the only people I know who's born and raised in Manhattan, in the Upper West Side.
0: Okay, let's listen now to Peter Lubell and see if he's telling the truth. In
3: 1979, I had dinner with, and may have saved the life of Carmine Galante <laughs> by ordering spadini. Uh. My, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and, and we uh, took a drive, my family and I, to Little Italy, which, in those days, it was like landing on another planet. It really was a very dangerous planet. It was sort of, sort of the fun. A lot of these restaurants really were mobbed up, and I would go in and kind of start scanning the exits. Um, but the food was really good, and Spadini, Spadini's this amazing. It's a Southern Italian kind of culinary specialty. It's very simple um, and yet hard to do. It's uh, it's basically bread that's threaded with mozzarella and dunked in this like anchovy paste and then deep fried. Um, it's really great, but not everybody knows about it. And um, so I ordered the Spadini, and the uh, waiter said that they didn't have any. Just then, this older man who was sitting at the table next to ours he said, Tony, did that kid just try to order Spadini? And uh, Tony said, yeah. And this guy looked at me. He said, kid, you know about Spadini? <laughs> and I said, sure I do. It's great. He started laughing. He said, are you Italian? And I said, no. And that was the first time he got a little sad. But as I say, there really was a lot of tension in this room up until that point. This, this old guy, he looked to me like he was sitting next to a couple of bodyguards, and they didn't look very happy either. And uh, there was just a lot of tension until you know, the Spadini incident happened. And he got so excited, he said, Tony, you make that kid some Spadini, I'm having some Spadini too. In fact, Spadini for everybody. And just like that, you know, it became a party. And uh, at one point, these bodyguard types got up and, and left the room. And when they came back, they were noticeably happier too. Uh, and this guy, Carmine, he just couldn't get over, you know, that I knew about this food. And, uh, you know, I was feeling very good about myself because, um, you know, it was the first time I'd ordered off the menu which uh, was really rare in those days, especially for an 11-year-old. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty cocky, too, and Carmine says, you know, you and your family, I'm having a party next week in Brooklyn. You should come. And um, I, I took him seriously. Anyway, the rest of the meal was very uh, nice, uh, and then I spent the rest of the week trying to convince my parents that he was serious and we should go to this party. Now, uh, we didn't go. The reason I know that this man, the reason I remember his name is that Carmine Galante was the head of the Bonanno crime family, which was one of the five families of the American mafia. And he was murdered a week later at this restaurant in Brooklyn. And his bodyguards were uh, later implicated. Nobody actually ever did time for this murder, but, but it's thought that the uh, bodyguards set it up. So in my mind, about 11 years after this incident, when I saw um, Goodfellas, and there was that scene you know, where they're having a good time with the guy that always... He's talking all the time, and you know he's going to die, but De Niro says, not tonight, not tonight, you know? And then five minutes later, they're shoving an ice pick through his neck in the back of a car, that really happened to me, and I would like to leave you with this. Uh, you know, you probably also remember the other great mob movie, of course, *The Godfather*, and the famous line uh, at the beginning. You know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Um, to that, I would just add, order the Spadini. Number one, because it's delicious. Uh, but also, it may save a life, at least temporarily. Thank you.
0: That was storyteller Peter Lubell. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest in the studio this morning is Andy Christie. Andy is the founder of The Liar Show, a comic storytelling event that uses the audience as a polygraph test. And this morning, we're challenging you to determine which of the storytellers we're presenting to you is the liar. So we'll give away that liar at the end of the show. Our next storyteller is a woman by the name of Faye Lane. Andy, tell us about Faye. She's a performer.
1: She's a singer. She's an actress. She has a couple of one-woman shows out there. One, I think the upcoming one is called I Wish It So, and the one before that was Texas Beauty Shop Stories. She grew up under a hair dryer in, in a uh, Texas uh, beauty shop. Her mother was a, was a, was a hairdresser. Um, so that, that's her background. Really interesting. And she's also a flight attendant. A lot of her stories spawn from that experience.
0: Well, the story she is about to tell is a heart-wrenching story. So get your Kleenex ready. <laughs> it is. Get them out.
4: So I grew up in Texas. This fat little girl in a glittered-up Burger King crown, constantly reading. And when I was nine, I read this book called Angel Unaware, which was written by Dale Evans, who was married to Roy Rogers. And Dale Evans and Roy Rogers had a baby who died, and she wrote this beautiful book about it that put forward the idea that their baby was an angel. And it was based on a scripture that says, be mindful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So I spent the greater part of my childhood on the lookout for angels. And whenever I met a stranger, I would think, are you for real? Are you an angel? So in 1990, my husband and I arrived in New York City with nothing. No jobs, no contacts, and very little money. And we were living at the Chelsea Hotel because we could pay our rent with a credit card. And New York in the 90s, in the early 90s, was very different and kind of scary. And there was this homeless guy who had set up camp downstairs outside our building. And it was really awkward for me because I didn't know how to be. You know, I I didn't want to just walk past and not acknowledge him. But I was kind of scared, and we just had nothing to spare. And he would call out, hey, can you help me? And I just didn't know what to do. We were living on what we called dollar food. A dollar egg roll, a dollar slice of pizza, a dollar taco. And one day the guy at Fast Walk gave me two egg rolls for my dollar. So I just really awkwardly gave one to the homeless guy. He said, thanks, what's your name? And for some reason, I guess I was scared, I told him my name was Linda. He said, thanks, Linda, and we developed this weird little relationship where I would give him whatever I could, whenever I could, and he started kind of looking out for me. Like if I came home late, he would say, Linda, where have you been? This is ridiculous. (laughs) But it was odd. I couldn't get too close because he was usually drunk and often inappropriate, and he would disappear for days at a time. And one day, he just disappeared altogether. About four years later, I was standing in a deli across the street from Lord & Taylor on 5th Avenue. And I heard this guy say, Linda. (laughs) I didn't turn around. My name is (laughs) Faye. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around. And it was this good-looking older guy in a nice, expensive-looking suit... And he said, Linda, you live at the Chelsea Hotel, right? And I said, well, I live at the Chelsea, but my name is Faye. And he said, no, I remember you You used to bring me egg rolls. And I realized this was my homeless guy. And he said, you know what? Those were really dark days for me. And you were one of a handful of people who treated me like a person. And I want to thank you for that. And he pulls out this leather wallet and hands me two crisp, $100 bills, and you better believe I took it because (laughs) unlike him, we were still broke. (laughs) He said, you know what? You were like an angel to me. And I realized, I spent my whole childhood on the lookout for angels unaware and for the price of a few egg rolls and a few minutes of my life given awkwardly and hesitantly and completely imperfectly, I had the opportunity to be one for this guy. And then four years later, he was one for me. So I got to be and entertain an angel unaware. And that's my story.
0: And that was Faye Lane. We're going to move on now to James Brawley. Tell us about James.
1: He's a, kind of a corporate speechwriter. Um, his day job, which he does less and less of now, he's a monologist in the kind of form, you know, like Spaulding Gray type shows. He, um, he had a really successful show. He went to Edinburgh and then an off-Broadway run of his show, Life in a Marital Institution. And he has a new one coming up called The Monthly Nut. Very funny, very bright, articulate guy. Now, is James BSing us?
5: Well, you decide. Here's the story. So this is my big chance to get a two-bedroom apartment right in New York City, the real estate grail. Ordinarily, totally out of reach. But I own a little studio that shares a wall with a one-bedroom apartment, which is now empty. The uh, owner's daughter moved out back to Connecticut to reproduce. Uh, I knew she would. (laughs) She had Connecticut teeth. So uh, I've been writing little notes, slipping them under a door for years, saying when you move back to Connecticut to reproduce, uh, please tell me, because I'd like to buy your dad's apartment so that I can combine it with mine and have a two-bedroom where my wife and I can raise our kids. Uh, I have a little boy, another one on the way. My wife is pregnant. Possibly even a third, if I don't go insane in my tiny little apartment. So I call up the owner and I say, I'd like to buy your apartment. He says, what a coincidence. I'm looking at my apartment right now through my telescope in my study on Fifth Avenue. Uh, Brings back memories. (laughs) But that was then. Now it's my grandkids' education. You understand. I want them to have a good education. What price did you have in mind? And I tell him the price that the same apartment right above his just sold for. Uh, which uh, is actually worth a little bit more than his. The higher the floor, the higher the price. But when uh, your wife is pregnant and you are desperate, why quibble? He says, well, that's a very nice price, Uh, but an apartment is worth what someone will pay for it. I say, well, we know what someone will pay for it. Someone just bought the same apartment right above yours. He says, well, that's how much that apartment was worth to that person. My apartment might be worth something different to a different buyer, i.e. Right? me, right? somebody with a pregnant wife, and a kid, and no place to house them. Maybe, he says, maybe what we should do, right? as though we're in this together, <laughs> maybe, maybe what we should do is list my apartment with a real estate broker, right? put it out on the open market and see what it's worth. I say, you're not going to sell me your apartment? There's no rush, he says. I'm going to Europe tomorrow. For a month, at least, if you have any ideas, you can call my secretary, and she can try to reach me, which is when I decide to reach him through the market. Right? The operating principle being, an apartment is worth what someone will pay for it, and nobody is going to pay anything for an apartment that they think is next door to a lunatic. (Laughter) <laughs> So I bribe my doorman to uh, call me up whenever the real estate broker shows up with a client because a doorman is worth what someone will pay for him. (laughs) And I position the speakers of my stereo system so they touch the wall between my studio and the one bedroom. And whenever the doorman calls me up and says, They're coming! I look through the peephole until I see a real estate broker followed by a client. And then I put my ear to the wall And when I hear footsteps and someone saying, wow, this is a great apartment, I press play. (laughs) And then a few minutes later, what is that? Which uh, is the sound of market value plummeting. (laughs) And then... Somebody stumbling to the door, the lock, the sound of a fist on my front door, right? Which is the sound a real estate broker makes when he loses a 6% commission. Which, when you see it through a peephole, distorted, is actually kind of scary. And then, bing, goes the elevator, go the doors, and down goes market value. Every day for a month. Until I get a call from the owner saying... He's just back from Europe, feeling renewed, different perspective. Are you still interested in my apartment? And I am. Only now, whether it's uh, the relaxing effects of a month in Europe or 30 days of ACDC, we both agree his apartment is worth what I'm willing to pay for it. (laughs) Thank you.
0: That was James Brawley. And now is the time for you, the listener, to decide which of our storytellers is the B.S. artist, which is the liar. Choose one now. Okay, Andy, now is the time to reveal the truth, or should I say to reveal
1: the liar. Mm-hmm. Who lied? Who lied? Well, you were at the show, so you know who lied. Right? I do, I would yes. I'd like to be able to ask you. I will say that uh, James Brawley's story about being basically the worst possible neighbor in the world was the truth. Faye's uh, unbelievably heartwarming story was the truth. She's that kind of woman. Mark Katz's uh, story, kind of unfortunately for him, uh, was true, I mean, given that his mother cut his hair until he went to college. Uh, true story. True story. Sorry, Mark. Okay, so that that leaves us with, with Peter Lubell and, and his lunch with the mob and uh, missing that fateful birthday party. Totally made up. None of it ever happened. No question.
0: Mm-hmm. The Liar Show is a lot of fun. Andy Christie is the founder. You can
1: check out more about The Liar Show online, right? Yeah, at um, www.theliarshow.com. There's a, a full schedule there. Definitely worth checking out. Andy,
0: thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Tell me Thanks to the engineers at Comics New York in Manhattan and WFUV producer Andrew Hirschman for their assistance with a Liar Show segment. Finally this morning, a very true story about the closing of what's said to be the nation's oldest gay bookstore. The Oscar Wilde Bookshop in New York's Greenwich Village closes its stores for good tomorrow, another victim of the sour economy. As Aaron McLaughlin reports, the store will be missed.
2: We consider this place to be iconic.
6: Milton Garcia came to the Oscar Wilde bookshop on a sunny Sunday afternoon to say goodbye and captured on film. He posed for pictures with his partner in front of the landmark bookstore, which is about the size of a small studio apartment. Oscar Wilde opened in 1967 on Mercer Street, where its backroom served as the planning space for the city's first gay pride parade. The store's current owner, Kim Brinster, took a break from tearing down shelves to talk with me outside her shop. She says things were tough for the store in its early
0: years. When I came in 96, the windows were fiberglass
6: because bricks had been thrown through. The bookshop's now on Christopher Street and had glass windows installed in 1996. Brinster says they've never been broken. Craig Rodwell was the first of the store's five owners. His goal in opening the store was not only to provide a space to find gay and lesbian literature, but to give the gay community a place to hang out. And that it was... Greenwich Village resident Lawrence Grant has been in the neighborhood longer than the bookstore, and he says it's been a big presence in his life.
3: As a gay man uh, who is 71 years old, growing up at a time where gay was uh, not exactly in uh, the Oscar Wilde bookshop, was sort of the first time that I was able to sort of identify with being gay and that there were other gay people around.
6: A lot has changed since the Oscar Wilde bookshop opened in the late 60s. Barnes & Noble around the corner now carries gay and lesbian literature. But longtime Oscar Wilde patrons like Lawrence Grant say the neighborhood won't be the same without it. For Cityscape, I'm Aaron McLaughlin.
0: And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Coming up next week, Supers in the City. I'm George Bodarkey. If you have an idea for a show, email me at gbodarkey at wfuv.org. Thanks and have a great weekend.